Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5. I want to teach or continue teaching on the doctrine of confession. And by talking on the doctrine of confession, we're not talking about name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, say it and rhyme something that allows you to get it later. We're talking about what does the Bible say from the book of beginnings moving forward about this doctrine of confessing. Now, I said last week we could look at Genesis and see how God spoke the worlds into existence. That's the creative force of words. And we do hold to a form of that. We believe the scriptures that say life and death are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. We believe Job where it says declare a thing, it shall be established. And we believe the words of Jesus Christ in Mark 11 where he says, if you believe what you say, you'll have what you say. Uh, anyway, you can have what you say. We also believe that faith, the spirit of faith, believes it and therefore confesses it. So there is a strong power to confession. You can't be born again without confessing the name of Jesus because with the heart, uh, man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation or vice versa there in Romans 10. But before we go into that direction, we got to look at the foundation of confession because it isn't talked about a lot. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because it calls us to repentance and humility. And so we laid the foundation of it last week, and we looked at a lot of passages in the law of Moses where the, the doctrine of confession, we might even call it the law of confession, is laid out. And what it said over and over again is, when you're in sin, confess your sin. It was pretty simple. And the rule we saw over and over again is when you recognize you have committed a sin, your job is to confess that sin. Now, we do it even though God knows we sinned. We do it even though our spouse knows we sinned. The Bible still required under the old covenant and in the new that we still confess our sin. Part of it's just called being sweet and admitting you're wrong when you're wrong. That takes humility. We are battling a great heresy that was propagated by Christian television and bestsellers that says we're so saved and we're so blood-bought we don't need to say I'm sorry or confess any sin. What's the point? Jesus already forgave us. The point is humility and obedience to New Testament Scripture, moron. That's the point. I don't care how big your church is or how many book deals you got. That's heresy to say we don't have to confess our sin anymore. <laughs> anyway, you're still expecting your children to say they're sorry, right? You still expect your spouse to say you're sorry. I like what one minister said. If I don't have to confess my sin anymore, he was preaching this and there was a bunch of preachers on the front row who had just got up and before him at this conference taught the heresy that we don't have to apologize for sin anymore and we're already forgiven. He said, if I don't have to confess sin anymore, then brother Doug, you don't care if I have sex with your wife, do you? And we shouldn't apologize for it because we're, we're forgiven. And you know, Bill, it's okay if I sleep with your daughter, right? Is it okay if I fiddle with her? I mean, because we're blood-bought, right? We're forgiven. I don't owe you an apology. She doesn't owe me an apology. We're good, right? And he just went down the line and made every one of those preachers very uncomfortable talking about sex with their loved ones. At some point, reality and common sense has to kick in, no matter how big the offerings are when you teach that heresy. So I really appreciated him for making them all uncomfortable in a massive conference where they just tooted their horn and looked like they were holier with a new revelation. Because nobody in their right mind says, no, no, no. If anybody in my family has an affair, guns are being drawn. Apologies will not be accepted. <laughs> you want restitution. You want vengeance. So here in Numbers chapter 5, this goes on to talk about, I'm going to read out of the King James, and it's not the most clear, but we should be able to see it. We'll begin in verse 2. It basically says, if a soul touch any unclean thing, whether it be a carcass, a Leviticus 5.2, 
an unclean beast or a carcass or unclean cattle, the carcass of unclean creeping things. And if it be hidden from him, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Now, modern translation says, and then he realized what he's done. It, it comes to light. He's done something. He didn't know he had committed this trespass, but now it comes to light that he's touched something and he's ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, that he will be unclean and he'll be guilty. His guilt will be revealed to him and he'll know, oh, I'm guilty. Verse 2 says, if he touch the uncleanness of man, whatsoever uncleanness it be, that a man shall be defiled with all and it be hidden from him. When he knoweth of it, see, when he discovers it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a, foul, uh, if a soul swear, pronouncing with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatsoever it be that, with, that a man shall pronounce with an oath and it be hid from him, when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty in one of these. And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. Now, my point in bringing this out is the law is saying it's possible to sin and not realize you sinned. And you go along and your conscience is fine. But the second it's revealed to you, whether by the Holy Spirit or somebody reminding you or nowadays somebody showing you a video or a tweet and you realize I sinned or like Matthew 18, your brother comes to you and says, you said this and it hurt me. You're guilty. And it says you're going to have to acknowledge you're guilty. What this passage uh, forbids is self-justification. And it speaks of guilt in a positive sense. You should feel guilty when you're guilty because you're guilty. Now, if you don't feel cold when it's minus five degrees outside, you're going to die. And if you don't feel hot when it's 120 degrees outside, you're going to die. And if you don't feel guilty when you're guilty, you could possibly die. If you don't feel guilty when you're guilty, you've seared your conscience. And that's not a good thing. This passage begins to help build the conscience of the Hebrews. It says, listen, these are the laws. When you discover it, that you violated them, you're guilty. And you should feel guilty. And once you do, just confess it. That's all God's expecting. Just confess it. Just say that God's word is true. God's word says, if I touch an unclean animal, I become unclean. I did that. I'm guilty. I did the thing. Didn't mean to, didn't want to. Maybe I thought about it twice, really unintentionally did it, but I'm guilty nonetheless. This passage says most importantly when it comes to confession is we don't confess self-righteousness. We don't confess justification. We just call it like it is. I messed up. And that requires humility. It takes humility to tell somebody I was wrong. It takes humility to come back and say, you know what? I said this and, and I forgot and I, I wasn't accurate or I gave you my word. I dropped the ball. Please forgive me. It takes humility, but less theological than that. It's just polite. I think it's ironic that the heresies that make Christian television filthy rich are teaching us to be impolite and we're calling that freedom in Christ. They're teaching us to be selfish and rude because I don't have to say I'm sorry because I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. You should have to forgive me. Well, so wait, you want him to do the word, but you don't want to do the word. So this doesn't make sense to me. This doctrine of confession begins by saying, verse five, it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. Just say you did it. Just confess it to God. It doesn't say you got to make a public proclamation. You may have to bring it to the priest in those days. We're not Catholics today. I don't do confessional. I do understand there is a catharsis that can come when you sit down and confess all your sin. It just feels like you need to do something. There is a place for that. James 5 tells us to confess our faults one to another. But the assumption there is that it's what you, how you faulted 
or defaulted or defrauded your neighbor, you don't go around telling everybody everything you did wrong. That's not appropriate. But at the same time, we're not going to set up a confessional where all I do all day long is hear your sins. I don't want that. Some of you guys do stuff I don't want to know about. I don't, I don't relish in knowing your dirt. I don't want to know it. I just think, what's wrong with me? I teach them better than this, and they're still doing that. It really is probably an ego thing for me. I don't want to know your dirt because it makes me feel like a failure. But I know the word's not the issue or the preaching of it. It's your application of it. Verse 6 says, He shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin, which he hath, uh, hath sinned. And so the implication is when you are guilty and you acknowledge your guilt, you recognize something must be done about it. So part of confession is calling your sin, sin, and realizing you need to atone for it, which is in, in this dispensation, it's pleading the blood of Jesus. Father, forgive me. I sinned against my wife. I sinned against my brother. I sinned against my boss. Lord, forgive me. I will make that right, but I need you to wash me now. And we, we cannot forget that sometimes our sins require a restitution in the present day. An apology is a restitution. If you break something of somebody's, you should fix it or pay for it. That's restitution. You should go make amends. You should ask for repent, forgiveness and see if you can pray for them. You've got to fix what you broke, if at all possible. That's just polite as well, but it's part of the doctrine of confession. If we can't do these basics, then we don't have to worry about confessing anything else because we can't even acknowledge God's word is true and that we're the liar when we violate it. This is very easy once you get the momentum rolling and the humility working. It's really easy to always admit when you're wrong and say, I'm sorry. Even maybe when you're only partially to blame. At least take your part of the blame so that you can be cleansed. If you don't confess or acknowledge your guilt, you're going to say, I don't need God's help. And I think wisdom tells us no matter what's going on in your life, always look for part of where you're to blame. Now, there is a ditch that you can get into where you think everything's your fault, and that's weird. Not everything's your fault, but there's always something we fail at because we're human beings. All right? So I want us to understand that. Write this down. We don't have to turn there. Leviticus 16 talks about the scapegoat. Just to review real quick, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when Israel was atoning for its sins, you cast lots for two goats. You brought two goats. You cast lots. Of the two goats, one goat would belong to the Lord, and it would be sacrificed as a sin offering to the Lord. The other goat would be called the scapegoat, and that is the goat that the high priest would then lay his hands on, laying both of his hands on the head of the goat, and he would confess. There's our word again. He would confess all the sins of Israel over that goat and then release that goat out into the wilderness to take our sins away into oblivion. As far as the east is from the west is the the prophetic New Testament equivalent. Jesus Christ becomes the scapegoat. All of our sins are placed upon him. He was led outside the city and killed at the place of the skull to take all of our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. But the thing there is that the high priest had to acknowledge the national sins of Israel annually. There's a confession. If you don't confess, you can't receive the goodness of God. We're building this doctrine of confession because we're going to advance a little bit more. And then Numbers chapter, well, uh, Leviticus 26, write that down. We covered this last week. Leviticus 26 talks about the blessings of keeping the law and then the curses of keeping the law. It's the precursor to Deuteronomy 28, which most of you should be familiar with that passage. But one of the things it says in Leviticus 26, that if you fail to do the word and you get into sin, all this horrible stuff's going to happen to you. 
But then in verse 40, God says, but if my people will just confess their sins, I will remember my covenant and bless them. It's pretty simple. I mean, if we want to turn there, we can read it real quick. I don't want to read the whole passage. Leviticus 26, 40 simply says, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses, which they trespassed against me, and that also they've walked contrary to me. Uh, verse 42 says, then I then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the lamb. So we made this point last week. Confessing your sin allows God to remember the covenant and reactivate blessings. You and I know that when we sin against one another, or somebody sins against us, we have to mark them and put a distance between us. This is what produces strife in your marriage or causes your marriage to be rocky. You get into a fight and nobody repents. And you both instantly, by default, put your hand up and you stiff arm each other. You can't even acknowledge each other walking past each other in the hallway. You, you run into the kitchen and you act like they're a total stranger. I'm sorry, ma'am. Um, can, can I use the sink, ma'am? You act like total strangers because of the, the sin nature that makes you a carnal moron in your own home and marriage covenant because you've sinned against each other. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to say, I don't like this. Please forgive me. But you're afraid to say, please forgive me, because you don't know if they're going to say, well, you're right. You should be uh, forgiven because what you did was horrific. That's just so much pride. How is it that's still in adults' lives? This is stuff we were taught to resolve in middle school. We were taught to apologize, to go play sweet, to go work it out. Why don't adults in their marriages have this working? But carnality. Carnal, 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 carnal. And marriages that are that carnal will not be blessed of God. Marriages that are that carnal will not have their prayers answered. Marriages that are that carnal will not be used of God. Marriages that are that carnal are not to be followed or looked up to. Marriages that are that carnal need discipleship. They need marriage counseling. They need therapy. It's real easy. Just don't pick a fight. But what promotes or provokes you to want to pick a fight? What's in you that wants to fight? I mean, even Michael Jackson said, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Let's go back and get the Beat It album out. Listen to him and Paul McCartney talk. Maybe don't. Don't, don't, don't. No, that's a bad idea. <laughs> why, why are we still fighting? We confess our sin. In our marriage, we get to reactivate the covenant. You confess your sin to God, you get to reactivate his covenant. That also tells us that sin keeps the covenant from working. In our marriage, we know that when your spouse sins against you, it's really hard to want to keep covenant. And when you sin against your God, it's really hard to keep covenant. The Bible even tells us in the New Testament that we don't really get a right to the Lord's table at communion if we have ought against somebody. We have to confess that ought so we can sit and have fellowship with the Lord. When you have ought and you've not confessed it, when you have sin and have not confessed it, you can't even fellowship with the Lord at his table. And it's not a hard work. It's a simply saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I drop my charges against Brother Bill. I drop my charges against Sister Clois, whatever. I drop the charges. Please forgive me. That's, just, that's just all it takes. But have you noticed when you're in that much pride, it's hard to even say that? Pride makes even the confession of words difficult. And that's why this doctrine is so profound, because all God's saying is just tell me you're wrong. Just say it. Say it. Just say it. Say you're wrong. Say you're wrong. 
You know, if you ever used to wrestle with your dad, he might make you call uncle. Remember that? Or my household, this was dumb. We're from Louisiana. Calf rope. Did you guys do that in Louisiana? So dad would hold you down and just tickle you or torture you. He said calf rope, which was like uncle, if you know that term, which means tap out. I give up. And what dad would do or your uncle or your cousin would do, he'd just torture you until you gave up and said calf rope. In my household, they'd say calf rope. I'd say calf, say, he'd say, say calf rope. He'd hold my hands above my head and just torture me, just tickle me. This is my dad. When I got older, it was like real torture. It was chains and it was like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so there was a little bit of domestic abuse when I was a teenager, but I had every bit of it coming. <clears throat> but I still know some DCS workers, so if my dad is streaming, that's a threat. Every once in a while, I just tell them, yeah, one of these days you're going to be looking for a nursing home, and I know exactly the one. So he'd say, say it. It's calf rope. Chris is a turkey, a big, fat turkey. That's, that's how the game, that's how the rules went. And then he'd finally let me go for about a split second. Then it would start the torture all over again. God seems to work the same way. He says, say I'm sorry. And when you don't, your life gets harder. Say it. Just repent, son. Just repent. Just make it right. And the more you resist it, the harder your life gets. The more his grace leeches out of you, the more his joy departs you, the more his presence leaves that situation. And now you're sledding on concrete, you're plowing on steel, and everything is horrific. All because the pride won't allow us to say, I'm sorry. It's not even three full words. It's a contraction. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. There's three more words. And that is the linchpin that keeps God in your life or God out of your life. That's the power of confession. And if withholding confession keeps God away from us, no, it's no wonder the heretics moved on by demons are teaching the body of Christ to not confess sin. They're teaching us how to get God out of our life. And some of you listen to their telecast and buy their books, all about grace, the prince of grace, more like the prince of darkness, principality of Singapore. But when you're teaching people, they don't have to confess their sin. It's a dangerous heresy. So then we jump to numbers five, just write it down. It says there, if you hurt a person, confess that you hurt them and pay restitution. You hurt their, kill their goat, you hurt their child, uh, you damage their tent. Numbers 5 just talks about confess it, just fess up. Don't hide it, just confess it and then pay restitution. And then Deuteronomy 6 talked about making confession over your offering. And this is the first time the doctrine of confession departs the restitution or the restoration from sin. So before I advance this and we get into other verses that talk about confessing sin. I want you to understand we cannot receive forgiveness without confession. You can't restore fellowship in any relationship without confession. If I sin against my wife or she sins against me, we have to confess it. We have to say, honey, I'm sorry. She might say, honey, forgive me. We make our kids do it to each other. Tell your brother you're sorry. Tell your sister you're sorry. Now hug and go be sweet. Don't make me spank you. We want restitution, restoration. We want peace. You can't have peace without confession. Pride doesn't want to confess. Pride thinks I don't need you, so it just stay, sits stubbornly and rejects the notion that I owe you an apology. Well, the Bible says, owe oh, no man anything but to love one another, but love apologizes when love's wrong. What's so hard about saying I'm wrong when you're wrong? 
We're smart people. We ought to be able to know when we're wrong, and it ought to be an easy thing to say, I was wrong. Should, should be able to be as easy as saying, that is a Toyota, and that is a Chevy, and that was right, and that was wrong. But pride won't allow us to say we're wrong when we're wrong because we're too busy being mad and hurt and offended and petty. So we double down on our stubbornness, and God's hand begins to lift off of our marriage, our life, our prosperity, our health, God forbid, our children. And all he's saying is, say uncle. Say uncle. Say it. Say it. You're, we've all experienced we're just miserable until we call our wife or our husband or our brother or our sister or the coworker and say, I need you to forgive me. I was wrong. And what's also I find ironic is the Lord's dealing with us to make that confession. And we're like, nope, nope, that's not God. Nope, nope, that's, that's me. That's totally me. That's, the Lord would never want me to call, call somebody up and apologize. Why would the Lord want me to do that? He's interested in bigger things. Why would he want me to say I was wrong? Why would he want me to change directions? Why would he want me to be humble? So we start excusing the assignment of God when it's as simple as confess and say you're wrong so that you can have fellowship again, so that you can have the beauty of whatever relationship you have offended or hurt. So James 5.16, you don't turn there, but it says, confess your faults one to another. There's the New Testament equivalent. So to undermine all those Christian television heretics that say we don't have to apologize, the New Testament ties healing of the body to the confession of sin. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed, that you might be healed. Confess your faults. Confess your faults. Probably the person you're going to confess the most faults to, you live in the same house with. And that being the case, it ought to be real easy. Because you're going to be good at it. You only sin the most against the people you're the closest with because you have the most proximity, closest proximity. They say most car accidents take place within five miles of home. Why is that? That's where you do a bulk of your driving. So you increase the rates of accidents. Who are you going to sin against the most? The people you love the most because you have to live under the same roof with them. So you keep bumping into them with grouchy moods. So we ought to be really good at saying, I'm sorry to our husband, our wife, our children, our parents, our siblings, grandma if she lives in the basement, or Uncle Bob if he lives in the attic. You ought to be able to say, I'm sorry. It ought to be easy. There should be no loss of fellowship in your home at all. If, we might say this, your maturity is proportionally linked to the length of broken fellowship. If you can go quiet for three days, give, I'm going to give her the silent treatment and you can go three days and do that, you're pretty carnal. You can go three weeks, you're a despot. That is pretty scoundrel. If you can't go three minutes, that's pretty mature. It, it makes you miserable to think we don't have fellowship. One guy said, I was giving my wife the silent treatment until she asked me what I wanted from McDonald's. And then I just had to speak up. Something will always break it. For men, it's usually their sex drive. Now you're carnal and animalistic because you know you can't be intimate with someone you're not talking to. Even a hooker has to be propositioned. This is free marriage counseling right here. Uh-huh. I'm just trying to decide how far I want to take it. I think that's sufficient right there. My question again is how long does it take to grow up in a marriage? The Bible says, confess your faults that you might receive healing. 
So we got to get good at it because I don't want to be sick. And no amount of pain in my body is worth uh, being stubborn towards my wife or my kids or my church. We ought to be good at calling somebody up and saying, listen, I need you to forgive me. And then, then get that out there first so that you don't have any temptation to justify, well, you know, I was really in a bad mood the other day and I really had a lot of stuff on my mind. And so you're just totally leeching any efficacy out of your apology and confession because you don't want to be wrong, but you know you're wrong. So just shut up and say, I was wrong. Listen, I need you to forgive me. We were talking the other day and I, I said some things that weren't right and it's wrong. I'm just going to call it what it is. It's wrong. I need you to forgive me. Well, what did you say? I said this, this, this. Oh, I forgive you. I didn't think anything of it. Well, I did. It's been bugging me ever since. If it's gnawing at you, that's God chewing on you. And it'd be better just to go ahead and get it out in the open. But the encouraging thing is if he's chewing on you, he knows you. He's talking to you. So if he'll talk to you about that, he'll talk to you about bigger things too that are even more important than say, tell them you're sorry. Make that right. Swallow your pride. Quit being a fool. So let's go to Psalm 32. I'm going to look at this. We're going to look at this in the New Living Translation up here. So let's put it on the overhead. Psalm 32, verse 1. This is going to be the New Living Translation. Psalm 32, verse 1, New Living Translation. It says, A psalm of David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. What joy when you can finally be forgiven. But both Old and New Testament prescription requires we confess our sin to be forgiven. I understand that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, especially of them that believe. And I know that our sins were forgiven at Calvary, but we still must apply the covenant. I'm not here to debate that. If you want to debate that, you are running in weird circles. 1 John 1.9, a New Testament epistle written by John the Beloved, John the Divine, says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and restore it, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know the argument against it by one heretic who says, no, no, that was an epistle written to the Gnostic Jews and it's not for us. Well, why didn't he put that in the opening letter? To the Gnostic Jews. This I say unto you. Come on, man. You just, we still take the whole New Testament for us personally. We're not trying to make amends to keep our telecast on the air longer. Trying to make new doctrine up so you can listen to the next great big thing I have. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. That's a joy. We want to live there every day. As soon as we mess up, Lord, forgive me. That was really dumb. Verse 2. Psalm 32, verse 2. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt whose lives are lived in complete honesty. I like that. Is your life lived in complete honesty? Now, the King James says, blessed is a man in whose spirit there is no guile. Guile is telling the parts of the truth that make you look good while withholding the truth that makes you look bad. So the deception with guile is, I'm telling the truth. But that's why even in our court law, our courts that are based on Judeo-Christian law, no matter what the progressives want to say, our court of law says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? That means even the parts that make you look bad and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Well, I do. Guile only tells the part that makes you look good. So it says, blessed, what joy for those whose lives are lived in complete honesty. This is part of the doctrine of confession. 
We confess everything. In fact, it's often best to lead with the truth that makes you look bad. So then you can follow up with something that redeems your reputation. I was wrong. I yelled at him. I got mad at him. But they cussed me and my mama out and pushed my kid down. But if you lead with, they cussed my mama and pushed my kid down, and you don't tell the other part, then it looks, looks bad when it finally comes to light. Verse 3, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. That sounds like James 5, 6. Confess your faults that you might be healed. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. I think we've all experienced that internal groaning that you know you're not right with God and you're trying to make it right and you're acting, well, it's not this, it's not that. Well, maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night or maybe this is just stress and you find yourself sighing all day long. Sometimes that's a Holy Ghost groan and the Spirit of God is on the inside of you trying to make intercession for your moronacy by saying, just say you're wrong. Just apologize. Just fess up. I groaned within me all day long. Verse 4, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. God will make you miserable. We've all been there. And when we didn't know what it was, we were trying to justify it or say, it's, it's this, this. Well, I, didn't, I haven't had a good diet lately. I'm just under a lot of pressure. I've been fighting some symptoms. No, you know it's none of that. You know it's the hand of God heavy upon you because he wants you right. For those of us that have parented or are parenting, you know that you keep that child stiff-armed until the attitude changes. You'll try everything in the book. Go stand by the paddle. Go tell your brother you're sorry. All right, go sit in timeout. Go to your room. What do I got to do, kid, to break this thing? You can't have fellowship with someone until they repent. A parent gets this. You can't reward grouchy attitudes or unthankful attitudes. At least you shouldn't. So a good parent, they keep their hand stiff-armed on their child. You, I'll feed you dinner, but you don't get dessert, and you can't watch the movie with the rest of us. Not till this attitude changes. In our household, we try the happy blanket. We do everything. We try to poof them, anything to help them reset their little carnal attitude. And the, the, maybe the hypocrisy of it on our part as parents is we expect our kids to change their attitude like that, and we want to drag on for a month. But if a four-year-old can change their attitude, so can a 44-year-old. If an eight-year-old, so can a 68-year-old. It's not fair for us to expect a child to do stuff we're not willing to do ourselves. We should both do it. And if the eight-year-old can change their attitude within five minutes, you and I sure can. But you have to want to. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Selah. Verse 5. Finally, after all that misery, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. The modern heretic is teaching people that they should never feel guilty. God is not into guilt. Yes, he is. If you're guilty, you're guilty. You should feel guilty. God is not into condemnation, but he is into conviction. Conviction means your heart is tender. Condemnation either comes from your heart, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, or condemnation comes from the enemy. He makes accusations. God is not in either of those, but he is totally in conviction. And how do you know if it's conviction? Well, because you're guilty and you've not said, I'm sorry yet. Once you've said, I'm sorry, and you've made amends to whoever you sinned against, including your God, any feeling after that is condemnation. But if you're guilty, you should feel convicted because you are guilty. Amen. 
The, the, the strange woman, the prostitute, the adulteress in Proverbs says she consumes a home. That means she destroyed a marriage through adultery. Then she wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. That woman is beyond redemption. Her, her conscience is seared. She doesn't feel guilty for destroying another home. It almost looks like in that proverb she's done this regularly. This is her hobby. This is her buffet. She consumes homes. That's why you don't run with loose women. Young men, young men, don't run with loose women. I, I, I want an experienced woman. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, and no woman wants an experienced man. When you get married, you should both be clueless, Amen. innocent. And when it comes to the marriage bed, you bump around like blind baby moles. You don't know what in the world you're doing. You're like, what, what do we do? I don't know. This is weird. Yeah. Want to go take a bath? I don't know. We've never been here before. You don't want some bobcat in the bedroom. That's weird. Because who taught her to be a squealer? Is she a porn star? Anybody wants a bobcat in the bedroom has been watching too much porn. I'm telling you, the, the, the innocence of God is what's glorified on the honeymoon night. You don't have any experience. You're both nervous. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and you're like, well, are we, is this working? I don't know. That's the glory of God. Amen. If your honeymoon looks like one of those movies you watched, you watch too many of those movies. And you probably need to repent of being perverts. Amen. So I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. And all my guilt is gone. It's just that simple. Just confess. No need for bulls, goats, chickens, cockatoos, pigeons. Just I confessed my rebellion to the Lord. He forgave me. And all my guilt is gone. Your guilt will not leave you until you say, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. This is him just simply saying, call it what I call it. Say like I say. Read what I've written and just declare it. It is the opposite of Adam and Eve before the fall, where whatever Adam called it, God said, that's what it'll be. That's an aardvark. That's a woodchuck. That's a parakeet. That's a beaver. That's a cat. That's a narwhal. After the fall, we don't get to say things anymore. After the fall, whatever God says, we copy. God, that's evil, that's good. That's holy, that's perverse. That's clean, that's filthy. That's pure, that's impure. That's right, that's wrong. Now God's looking to us to say, can you repeat after me? Say it like I say it. Say it like I say it. When your children are young and innocent, they ask you how to pronounce words. They ask you, what is this? What does that mean? They want to know right from dad. They want to know right from mom. We should be the same way, asking our Heavenly Father, what is right? What is wrong? And whatever you declare is right is what it's going to be. Whatever you declare is wrong is what is wrong. This verse tells us, I confessed my rebellion to the Lord. He forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Say law, verse 6. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time. Ooh, that sounds kind of terrifying. That they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. I wonder if there's ever come a time where it was too late to repent. The Bible tells us that certainly was the case. That Esau tried to repent, but it was too late. He even tried to turn on the tears and manipulate God, but could find no place for repentance. There comes a time when you've so trained yourself to never have to tell anybody you're sorry. It's even a mantra now, never say you're sorry. And they say in business, never apologize. God's hand will be against you. 
you'll learn how to be stubborn, insubordinate, and unyielding, and it'll destroy your life. The floodwaters of judgment will come upon you. We don't want any of that for us. We want to be good at apologizing. I remember years ago, 20 years ago, I always, my boss has always worked in a different state, so I was pretty independent. And I got under gross conviction that I was checking the news too much. This was right after 9-11. The internet had really just taken off, and there was news sites. For some of you young people, you were born like after 9-11. You don't even remember this. The internet being at your job was a big deal. And then when news sites started having, in those days, it was a 24-hour news cycle. Now it's like a 15-minute news cycle. You could hop on the news and check out articles and not have to wait till you got home. This is revolutionary in 2001, 2002. And I was, it was after 9-11, and I was getting under conviction because I was checking the news a lot to see the newest update on 9-11, the terror attacks, which really did happen. And they bl flew airplanes into buildings and and the Pentagon, and apparently attempted the White House. And I was under conviction for spending too much time on the internet. And it was bugging me. And I wanted to repent and make it right. I confessed it to God, but it really bugged me. So when my boss, Mr. Montgomery, was coming to town from Atlanta, I already determined I was going to confess to him just to make it right. And I, I was 26, 27, and Mr. Montgomery was in his 50s, late 50s. So I was like a son to him, but he walked past my office his first day and then I had to just get the gumption to go ahead and do it because if not, I'm going to be sick at my stomach till I do it because I know I've got to do this thing. I felt compelled of God to do it and I wasn't going to waste the time and I want to go ahead and get it cleared now because we're going to go out to dinner lately and I don't want to be miserable at dinner because I haven't done what I need to do. So Mr. Montgomery, I called him by his first name, but Mr. Montgomery walked past the door. I said, Mr. Mr. Sir, he said, yeah, Chris. I said, hey, it's going to be weird. I need to apologize to you. I've really been wasting a lot of time checking the news lately, and I'm, I feel bad about it. He was a Christian, but he wasn't a, a strong Christian, so I wasn't going to use the word convict. I said, I want you to please forgive me. I want you to know I'm going to change my internet behavior. And he paused, and he dropped his head, and he said, you know, Chris, I think we all get a little guilty of that from time to time. I think I convicted him because he was probably doing the same thing. All, everybody was doing it because it was 9-11 and thereabout. But I wanted to be clean, and I wanted my bosses to trust me. I wasn't in the habit of hiding anything, and this was a new thing that came up on my life that could be potentially character-destroying. And so in, in that season of my life, I wanted everything as crystal clean as possible. And I didn't do it for his sake. I did it for my sake. But I could tell it blessed him. He knew he could trust me. I wasn't doing it to earn his trust. I was doing it to maintain his trust. But if we're not careful, my point is, you'll start to let things slip that you don't think you need to apologize for or confess and before long, your filter is so clogged, you'll let big things in because the little things don't bother you anymore. We have to make sure we keep our conscience right so that the flood waters of judgment don't come upon us. Uh, let's keep reading. We'll finish out this psalm, and then I've got one or two more verses, and we'll be done. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Look at those verses in light of the whole psalm whose theme is confess and get the sin out. If you'll confess and get the sin out, you won't be likened to a horse or a mule that needs a bit and bridle to control yourself. 
If you'll confess your sin, you won't have to worry about sorrows and wickedness coming upon you, but you'll stand in the unfailing love of God. If you'll confess your sin, he'll be able to cause you to rejoice and be glad, and you'll be able to shout for joy. There's just something about staying perpetually clean. Now, we don't live clean. How do I want to word this? We're going to pick up dirt. That's my point. We can live clean by always keeping it clean. Now, so I want to say we can live clean, but we're going to pick up dirt. We're going to do dumb stuff. We're going to begin to pioneer new attitudes that we got to cast down. We're going to start to pick up new vices that we're going to have to cast down. We have the ability to stay pure by confessing our sin. If you don't get into the practice of this, your life will only get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Part of holding fast the confession of our faith, which Hebrews talks about twice, Jesus Christ being the high priest of our profession, we keep confessing what we've always confessed, which is this is right and this is wrong. Today I did right, tomorrow I do wrong, and when I do wrong, I have to do what's right. We hold fast the confession of our faith by always saying what is right and what is wrong based on the Word of God. When you lose your confession of faith, the world gives you a new one. And you end up losing your culture that's based on the kingdom and you you lose your convictions that are based on the word and you begin to take on the world's new convictions, which are crazy. The world's current morality is crazy. It's a shifting standard. And the world acts today like what we believe in. We've believed for the last 6,000 years of human history and we haven't even believed it. We made it up three years ago and then just bombed it out on Twitter. And 14-year-old girls propagated it. It's not normal. It's not anthropological. It's not sociological. It's not historical. It's not healthy. But if you don't hold fast your confession, you'll start to catch it. You'll catch it. Um, let's go to 2 Samuel. I want to show you a story real quick. 2 Samuel, and then we're going to talk about the prodigal real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's talk about confessing our sin. Here in 2 Samuel 12, you have the story of Nathan the prophet coming to King David. This is after David has had the affair with Bathsheba. He has also conspired to have Uriah the Hittite move to the front lines of the battle so that he can be murdered. He's murdered or killed in war so it looks normal so that David can hide the pregnancy of Bathsheba and take her to be his wife. He's done all this. It seems to have been covered up. David's prospering, Uriah's dead, Bathsheba's grieving, but she's pregnant with another man's baby. My personal conviction is Uriah the Hittite, being one of the mighty men of valor, and his wife Bathsheba, they've been with David from the beginning. They were in the cave of Dulam together, and he has known Bathsheba for a long time, and I think Bathsheba knew David for a long time, and maybe they kind of had an eye for each other. Anytime you serve together in companies like that, there are always issues that can arise. So it's not like he kidnapped her off the balcony top. She's been a part of the company all along. Uriah is one of the mighty men of valor. He was trained in the cave of Dulam with all the other mighty men of valor when they were nothing. So their families, these are close families. This is church that's been family together for 25 or 30 years, and now we have an inter-church affair. Happens all the time today. So David gets judged. And so Uriah, excuse me, Nathan, and Nathan the prophet comes in 2 Samuel 12, puts forth the parable talks about a rich man and a poor man. They both had lambs. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. The rich man had a whole bunch of flocks of sheep. But the rich man, verse 4 says, there came a traveler into the rich man, which I think is David's sex drive personified. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. 
and he has to act on it. And he's spared to take of his own flock. You know, go have sex with one of your seven wives, David. Leave this man's wife alone. Why would you take another man's wife? He spared not to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man. Wayfaring means you come and you're gone and you never say goodbye. It's, it really is personification of the, the fleeting sex drive that flares up out of nowhere. Pardon the word, but you're horny and you got to quench it. And David had seven wives. Why has he got to take this man? So you see the innuendo here in this parable that Nathan is using to judge David. But you took the poor man, he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Judgment has come. It's a floodwater of judgment. Now, David, when he says, this man shall repay fourfold, he's quoting Exodus 22, verse 1, that if a man kill another man's lamb or goat, you'll repay fourfold. He's quoting the law. He's being biblically just, and yet he had gaping holes of blindness in his own life. So zealous to drop the hammer of judgment on this story, not realizing it's his own story. And the harsh thing is there's no call for judgment of death, a death penalty for this situation, but he invokes it, which means he invokes death upon himself. He says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed thee king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. I'd given you more. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be your wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against your own house, out of thy own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbors and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun for thou did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun and David said unto Nathan I have sinned against the Lord it bugs me that David's confession didn't come in verse 7 why couldn't he instantly say I'm wrong he waits for one, two, three, four five verses of judgment. Now, the next verse lets us know if he'd have waited any longer, David would have not finished the last 20 years of his life. David said in verse 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord hath also put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Do you see how instantly judgment is stopped if we would just shut up and confess our sin and say, I'm wrong. The next thing it looks like that Nathan was about to say is, you are a dead man. David says, I have sinned. And the next thing the prophet says, God has put away your sin. But God can't put away sin until David says, I have sinned. Why couldn't he say it in verse 7? You are the man. I think there was some pride that probably arose wanting to justify. What are you talking about? I gave you your master's house. He starts to hear the, the testimony, everything God's done for him. It should have been when he said, you've done evil in his sight. I would have said, guilty. What would I do? As soon as he said, you killed Uriah, I would have said, guilty. Why does he wait so long but that 
his pride took a few moments to deconstruct or defuse or destroy. If David, I'm convinced if David had waited just another verse, he'd have been a dead man. But he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. David confessed his sin openly, publicly. He wrote it down in Psalm 51. It's worth reading in the New Living Translation. We won't read it. But he's where he says, I confessed my sin against you and you alone have I sinned and done this deed, and I will not justify it. That is how we get the, pre- the, the presence of God, the covenant of God, the glory of God back in our life. God does not restore fellowship with us until we confess. It's not hard. I really don't know why folks are falling for the heresy coming out of Singapore that says we don't have to confess our sin. It's not hard. It's not hard. It is when you have pride, but now we're teaching people to sear their conscience and not feel guilty about anything. Now, last passage here that I I think will help us. Luke chapter 15. And let's look at something about the prodigal. We know this story. Luke 15. Young man comes to his father, says, give me my lot. And immediately takes his leave, goes into a foreign land, uh, wasting and squandering his father's substance with riotous living. Verse 14 says, when he had spent all there, arose a mighty famine in the land, he began to be in want, which always comes upon people in sin. They always suffer want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, which for the Jews is a great insult because those are unclean animals. Now the man lives in perpetual uncleanness. Don't miss the allegory and the symbolism here that spoke strongly to the Lord's Jewish audience. Just like we read Numbers 5, you touch an unclean animal, you are ceremonially unclean, and you are to confess you're unclean. This man lives with pigs. He lives perpetually unclean before God Almighty. So does every prodigal. This is why we cannot fellowship with prodigals. They live perpetually unclean. In this parable, the father does not chase him. The father does not open his home to him. The son is living unclean, doing what he wants. Not just He's not sowing wild oats. He's eating pig oats. When he would have fained and filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him, why would mom and dad dare do that? That's the danger of prodigals. You don't finance them, not one penny. If you finance the prodigal, you postpone their repentance. You slip them burger money, even for the grandbaby, you postpone their repentance. You might even finance their trip to hell. If you want the prodigal to come home and see the prodigal's return, you have to follow the prodigal's punishment. You slip them money while they're unclean and you'll be guilty of the same sin. Verse 17. So let's look at it. He's left his father. He's broke. He's perpetually unclean. He's eaten pig food. He would have starved to himself and nobody's helping him. If nobody's dumb enough to help him, why are mom and dad always the dumb ones to help him? Because of weak emotional soul ties. When he came to himself, as long as mom and dad are sneaking him money, he'll never come to himself. 
As long as mom and dad are paying insurance, he'll never come to himself. As long as mom and dad are paying car payments, he'll never come to himself. As long as mom and dad are blessing the grandkids, he'll never come to himself. When he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. The man is totally out of fellowship with his father. I will arise and go to my father, and I will, what's that word? Say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. We see the Levitical doctrine of confession as the linchpin to restoring prodigals. And he arose and came to his father. But when he, he was uh, yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, well, there's no reason to apologize now. We're good. The son said unto him, because I think every day from that long walk back from that foreign country, he, he rehearsed the, the confession. Father, I've sinned against the Lord and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called, counted among your hired servants. Just make me a slave. I'm sure he rehearsed it every day. I'm going home, I'm repenting. I'm going home, I'm repenting. By then, it's so much in his heart, he's going to say it no matter what you say to him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For my, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. There could be no fellowship with prodigals without confession of sin against God and conf confession of sin against mom and dad. This is what regulates our relationship with prodigals. Until they're willing to say, I have sinned against our God. Not your God, mama. My God. Because if we're not serving the same gods, we got nothing in common. I don't care if we grew up in the same household. I have sinned against my God and I've sinned against you, dad. Until that happens, you can't act like everything's hunky-dory and they are technically still prodigal. And don't let them manipulate with babies or grandbabies. Needs. I was in a car accident. I'll pray for you. Maybe if I can, I'll come visit you, but I'm not going to be there to pad your fall. Salvation is longer than broken bones. And I see you. That sounds hard, pastor. Eternity's longer. Eternity's longer. And I can't escape this concept that we do have demons we contend with. There is a demon realm. And prodigals are usually, they're like the roadkill on a hot summer Tennessee day. They're surrounded with the Lord of the flies. And when you bring hot roadkill into your house, you bring the flies and the maggots with them. And until they're purified of the putrefaction of sin through confession, you'd be a fool to bring them in your home because they're just going to bring their maggots and their blowflies. The confession of sin to God and to family is what allows restoration. Until it happens, there can be no fellowship. That's the prodigal. That's the story. You're awfully quiet. You're like, you all have prodigals in your life or something. You might one day, but you need to know how to re restore them. You don't restore them aiding and abetting them. But this is the doctrine of confession. You can't say what's well, Old Testament because it's right there in the Gospels. It's in the book of James. It's the key to healing. It's the key to restoration. It's the key to the covenant being activated. We need to make sure we get really good at saying, I'm sorry when we're wrong and being able to admit I was wrong. 
Don't pick pride fights at the job because they found your calculations were wrong. Uh, be willing to say, all right, well, show me where I was wrong. We need to be good at humility, church. We need to be good at admitting when we're wrong, when it doesn't even matter that we were wrong. Just practice it then because it's going to be really critical when it does matter, when it is a bigger thing. You can always tell where your pride is by how easy it is to say, please forgive me. I was wrong. So let's pray something and we'll practice confession. I'm not going to be a mega ministry superstar because I don't teach heresy. So I'm going to teach the Bible and we'll just confess pride to the Lord. We're all guilty of that. So let's bow our heads and pray that together right now. Pray after me. Father, in Jesus' name, I repent. I confess the pride, the sin of pride. Please forgive me. Forgive my attitude. Forgive my pride. Help me, Lord. Help me walk in humility. Help me be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. May there be peace in my home, peace in my marriage, peace in my family. Show me my pride. Show me where it produces strife. I confess my sin. You alone are right, and I am wrong. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.